Hey everybody, this is Ben Hine, one of the pastors here at Shady Grove, and I just wanted to give you a quick special introduction to this episode you're about to listen to on Mark chapter 7. Uh, we have been trying to get these episodes down to about an hour, and so far we have not been able to do that, and uh, we especially ran over it with this episode, and that is because we had uh, some really great conversation, especially when we got to um, the passage on the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, we did a special detour here intentionally to talk about what are some of the challenges of interpreting Jesus's interaction with the woman, especially using this language of, of dog? You know, we, so we talked about some issues in our culture and in our churches that can lead to a harsh and negative reading of this passage. I think it was a great conversation. I hope you will really benefit from it. I was really glad that Becca and Tammy were here to speak to some of those challenges and those issues. Um, but it is a long episode. And so if you want to hear that conversation specifically about the Syrophoenician woman and cultural challenges, that starts around the 27-minute mark, if you want to fast forward to that. I do encourage you to listen to the whole episode at some point, because Mark 7 is really crucial to understanding the book of Mark um, as a whole. It is long. You might have to listen to it in two parts. Um, if you're listening on a podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can speed it up. So there is an advantage to that. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode. I do encourage you to listen to the whole thing if you can. Uh, uh, it is an important chapter. And so without uh, any further delay, let's get into Mark chapter seven. You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. And I am joined today by two other guests. In front of me, we have Tammy Jones, one of our women's teachers and women's leaders in our church. And we're really glad that she's here to join us for this conversation. We also have Becca Locos, who's one of our admin assistants, our youth assistant and uh, a seminarian student. And we're really glad that she's here with us as well. And we're going to be talking about Mark chapter seven this morning. And we have a lot to get into uh, with this text. And so we're going to skip kind of the introductory uh, discussion that we've been having because there's a uh, we're going to be getting to a pretty lengthy conversation today um, later when we discuss the Syrophoenician women and uh, the role of women in the church and why this passage can kind of confront um, just how we view uh, why it can be difficult maybe for women in particular to understand what Jesus is saying to that woman and uh, the language that he's using there. And so we'll be having a pretty lengthy conversation about that uh, here in just a moment. Uh, Mark chapter seven gets into a number of issues where Jesus is confronting um, the Pharisees and the oral tradition and really getting to the heart of what truly defiles a person. Is it uh, what's external to us or is it what is internal to us? And so he confronts the Pharisees about that issue and then he heads back into a Gentile region uh, where we see um, that the message of the gospel is not just uh, for the Jews, but also for all who will believe. And so it's a really wonderful passage, a lot of good uh, stuff for us to get into here. And so let's jump in. Uh, we're going to start with verses, really verses 1 through 13, but it kind of really goes up to, um, I don't know, about verse uh, 20, 23, where is this initial conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and then this explanation that he gives um, to the disciples. Uh, passages like this are really unmistakable evidence in the gospel of Mark that he's not writing primarily for Jews, but for a Gentile audience, likely Roman Gentiles. Uh, three times we see in uh, the first 23 verses 
Uh, three times we see parenthetical explanations to explain what's going on. Uh, plus, Mark gives us a window window into Jesus's teaching when uh, he pulls the disciples aside and explains what's going on. Uh, and so it's very clear that he's writing this for at least this chapter specifically for a Gentile audience to know what's going on. Uh, there appear to be maybe two primary purposes here uh, to show his conflict with uh, Jesus's conflict with the oral tradition of the Pharisees. And uh, second, to underscore for Mark's readers that Christians need not worry about ceremonial laws and and so forth. So um, Becca and Tammy, uh, one of the things that we see in this section, really Jesus's conflict with the Pharisees is how they had really set up um, extra moral guidelines for the community. So they took sort of what was prescribed in the Torah, uh, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament. They took what was prescribed there about being clean or unclean and set up a whole bunch of additional rules about um, what that looks like. So what are the advantages, do you think, of them doing that? What are the advantages of setting up all these extra rules? And what are the disadvantages of doing that? And Becca, we'll uh, start with you. Okay. Um, Well, I think setting up extra rules and guidelines, it helps make... um, make things practical, right? It makes your faith, this is what it looks like to actually apply this to all these different situations. And for them, I mean, some of these, it's cleanliness, like that's actually probably good for their health to Uh um, be clean. Um, So that's just very practical. But even when we think about it, it would be, yeah, how does faith look lived out? Um, It can also add a layer of protection, I think, if you know that you're tempted in a certain way, setting extra boundaries that aren't required is very healthy and helpful. Yeah. Tammy, you want to add maybe just advantages? You see any positives to what they were doing? Well, it certainly made them safe. You know, like um, uh, it, it put them in a, they felt that they knew they were being pure mm-hmm. by staying extra far away from unclean things. Mm-hmm. And comparing them to the disciples that Jesus chose I mean, these guys dealt with dead fish all day, so they were unclean. Yeah. And it was a kind of gave them a contrast. You know, we don't we don't deal with that. Um, So there were advantages. And it also I I don't know if this is kind of a negative, but it it gave them a bit of control over um, what they would consider, you know, clean and unclean. So I, I guess I see that they could feel good. Like you were saying, we knew, um, we know, you know, if we're tempted by something, like I had a pastor years ago that wouldn't go to the bowling alley. Mm -hmm. He never preached against bowling, but for him, it was a a location of temptation from before he ever became a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so that he just said, I don't put myself in that position of temptation. And I, I respected that, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the Pharisees are working from, you know, this oral tradition called the Mishnah, uh, which was believed to be an unbroken chain of tradition, uh, from Moses to the present. Um, you still see, uh, aspects of this in Roman Catholicism. You still see aspects Mm -hmm. of this in, um, Islam, right? Uh, and Islam, you have varying oral traditions and, you have to measure which one is more authoritative and depending on the source and so on. But uh, this seems to be a kind of a common religious impulse um, 
we do this a little bit in the reformed evangelical tradition, like, you know, when we quote Calvin and stuff, but uh, we don't really refer to that as tradition so much as maybe historical precedent or something, you know, we don't really call it tradition. Um, so, that, so we discussed some of the advantages and I would certainly agree with all the advantages that you all listed, you know, especially um, helping people resist sin and temptation and so on. But what are some of the disadvantages? We'll go back to you, Becca. What are some of the disadvantages um, or the negatives of what the Pharisees were doing? Yeah. Um, I think that, well, clearly following those rules and those guidelines seem to become more important, right? They've lost mm-hmm. sight of the central message, the mm-hmm. reason yeah. for the need for being clean, um, things like that. And so that's where, um, legalism would come in where we think we're kind of <clears throat> earning our faith in some way or, or earning our status. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it can even make it, um, sorry, I'm losing my voice. It's not good. We were studying <laughs> last night. <laughs> yeah. Too, too much, much wild studying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it can also make it easier to judge others. I think yeah. of like, they're not following these rules that I think are so yeah. important. And so now, how could they really be a Christian or how can they really have true faith? Yeah, I think that's right. Tammy. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's true. And it can be, you know, these are human sources, so the rules could change and we may not know, or, you know, we may judge that, we may judge others based on what our rules are, but they might be different than someone else's rules or, and they're unreliable. I mean, they're human beings. It's just not God's word. And yeah. I agree that there's nothing wrong with tradition. I come from a very tradition-rich heritage and uh, church tradition. But, I mean, we have a, like, tradition. You yeah, know, we always right. talk um, very highly of tradition. But it just, it has to stay in its place. Like, the good can be the enemy of the best. Yeah. You know, and the... um Scripture has to be supreme over the good traditions that we may hold. Yeah. Yeah, we certainly see how Jesus um, exposes that that this is exactly what happened, is it got out of hand and perhaps um, like good advice or good wisdom principles became elevated above the law itself Mm -hmm. and got to a point where it actually undermined Mm -hmm. the law. Right. And so um, I think it's verse nine, maybe where, um, yeah, in verse nine, he says, uh, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Or that's the that's the point that it got to. Um, You have a fine way of um, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, coming after he uh, recites from um, Isaiah twenty nine. Uh, which is the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, which we need to keep that in mind here in just a moment when he starts talking about the heart. Um, But their heart is far from me, even though they say they honor me um, with their lips. So would you say then um, kind of today, uh, apply this to today, is this a good, good practice to have or a bad practice to have? And like, what might that look like? for us today. And we'll start with you, Tammy, this time. Is this good or bad to kind of set up all these extra rules or principles? Well, sure. I guess it can be both. It kind of, you know, like for my pastor, for my former pastor, not to go to the bowling alley, that's not a bad thing, but that's something I think in spiritual maturity, he recognized was his temptation, 
his need as opposed to preaching that from the pulpit as, Mm -hmm. you know, no bowling alleys, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not ever what he said. So, I mean, we're human. I think we have to be very careful. And again, for me, it's been a process of going back to God's word. Where does this come from? You know, like where this was a tradition. It was almost taught as scripture. Yeah. But let's go back and look at scripture and see what the supreme word of God says before making that, you know, a plank in my faith. Right. Yeah, I think this is especially hard um, pastorally. And I mean, both of you know this too, like as teachers, you want to be able to say what you might think is best or what you think will serve those who you're teaching, right? And so you want to give good advice of like, yeah, I think this would be really good if you started doing X, right? But then there's a really fine line between giving good advice or even telling someone what you think is best and telling them what must be done, mm-hmm. right? And that there's like a really fine line. I mean, even tomorrow, I'm gonna kind of start off the sermon by saying, yeah, I think it's really good wisdom that in addition to Bible reading, you should always have a, one other Christian book that you're working your way through at all times. Just, I mean, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but I can't, that's not a law, but I think it's a really good practice, um, you know? And you definitely see today across the board, I mean, we have someone in our church, you know, who grew up in a very, cult controlling environment that would even tell you like what kind of peanut butter you could buy mm. or not. Right. And oh, um, <laughs> uh, so you have that, but then you also have maybe something a little bit more close to home. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up um, in churches that taught this, but uh, sort of the extreme um, purity culture and modesty culture mm. that really, you know, and, and in those types of environments, there are promises attached to mm-hmm. often promises attached to, if you do these things, which are all extra biblical things, then God will bless you with a good marriage or something. Right. And, and that's all extra biblical. None of it is, you know, and it becomes very binding. It becomes a means for judgment. Um, often Bible reading can, uh, become that way. So I know of others from churches where, you know, it became when you would show up to your small group, you know, you would go around the small group and ask, okay, like how many and how long, which is how many, how many times did you read your Bible this week? And for how long was it? And it became like a mark of judgment of whether or not you read your Bible enough and for a long enough amount of time. So there's all sorts of, um, things that we can do today that become, uh, you know, when Bible reading becomes, a burden of if I don't do this, I won't be a good Christian kind of thing. It's no longer serving to have communion with the Lord. It's serving as Becca was talking about earlier, like works righteousness. And um, yeah. So uh, Becca, you want to add anything to. Um, I think, I think Tammy mentioned this, but coming back kind of to the why of why we, choose to live a certain way Mm -hmm. is really important i'm actually with um the youth group girls right now we're doing a study where we're like going over different like even just talking about like how we use social media and what we watch and take in Mm -hmm. and we're gonna talk about like how we dress and things like this which are like often very sensitive but we're gonna the whole idea is for them to be coming back to the bible and say why do i choose those things not from i don't want to lay down for them like these are all of the ways or, or right. limits you should have or how you need to um, live, but just helping them think through how does this, my faith apply to every area of my life and I need mm-hmm. to make it practical and mm-hmm. I should be asking that question, but 
not everybody's going to land on the same page. And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily being unfaithful. Right. Yep. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind. And um, again, in teaching, you know, you'll you'll give a broad principle that might work for and be really good for 80 to 90 percent of people in the room. But you're kind of conscious of like there's 10 to 20 percent of people who are probably going to hear me the wrong way and are going to take this the wrong way. And might, this might be really sensitive for them. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, like I know when we've when we were talking about hospitality a lot late last year, mm. there were some people who have come from churches where hospitality really was a works righteousness thing. And so they were very sensitive to even like mm. hearing kind of three sermons in a row on that. And you're like, yeah, well, I, for you, like this is a sensitive thing and I'm not trying to add burden to you, but the majority of our congregation really needs to be pushed a little bit mm-hmm. on this. And so it's just, you're kind of, um, it's a really hard balance sometimes. Um, but let's talk a little bit because I think it can be hard. Um, this is one of the, maybe if you don't know the historical background of this, Jesus's example here with uh, Corban in uh, verses nine to 13. Mm-hmm. This is kind of his concrete, the first concrete example we see of uh, how the Pharisees had um, had transcended with their tradition uh, the real law of God. So what's going on? Uh, either one of you want to take a stab at this. What's going on with Corban and why was that such a big deal and why is Jesus using that as an example? Um, well, my understanding is that um, I guess you are allowed to dedicate um, some of your wealth or um, to God, um, but you still had control over it basically until you passed away. Mm-hmm. But then those goods couldn't be used um, to help support your parents, right? That, that's what they, or they weren't required to be used for that. And so it's not like these people were even giving um, what they had to the tr- to God right then mm-hmm. in service of him. They, they were actually still able to use it for themselves, um, but not to care. Yeah. for the people they were called to care for. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's kind of like uh, kind of like what we think of today maybe as like deferred giving in our wills or something where you set aside, you, you're saying like, okay, when I die, like this is going to go to charity or something like that. You know, it's they could declare, you know, their goods, their resources to be dedicated to God, to be dedicated to the temple. But like you said, in the meantime, they could continue using it, but because they had dedicated it, it couldn't go to somebody else, um, which then became a way for people to kind of get around um, uh, having, you know, providing resources for their father and mother if their father and mother needed it. And so now all of a sudden you have this tradition that became uh, a way to get around the very clear commandments of honoring your father and mother. And so it's no it's no accident that when you have this, this Mishnah, this oral tradition that they thought went all the way back to Moses – uh, that Jesus starts by quoting Moses <laughs> in the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, there's no accident here that he goes all the way back, um, all the way back to that to say, like, you've you've basically created a way for people not to obey the law of honoring their father and mother by this. And and I think um, another thing that makes this even more severe is that uh, once you had dedicated your goods as Corban, it, they made it really really hard to undo it. Um, so I think I, I one. Uh, well, Josephus, the early you know historian, Josephus tells us that priests required 50 shekels from a man and 30 from a woman in order to cancel Corban. Um, so once you dedicated it, like that, it was really hard to get out of that. So right? Corban was their law. Yeah. Okay. It yeah, became, yeah, it superseded. Right. Yeah. 
So that's what going back to verse eight, you leave the commandment of God and hold to Corbin, the tradition of man as one example of the tradition of man. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is a clear example again of how, you know, these people claim to honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And so, um, Jesus presses this more. Um, he called the people to him in verse 14 and, uh, says, hear me, all of you and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then when they had left, he goes into the house of the disciples and we get this explanation, you know, where it says that he's declaring all foods clean. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, what comes out of the heart. Um, uh, uh, that, where evil comes, evil doesn't come from the outside. It's what comes out of the heart. Right. And so um, this is really Jesus pressing what was going on. Um, with the pharisaical tradition and what it meant that their hearts were far uh, from him. So uh, throughout scripture, this word heart uh, refers to the center of one's being and includes our will, our mind, our emotions. So when he talks about the heart in uh, verse 21, you know, out of the heart comes evil. Uh, what What is he saying about the fallen human condition. What is he saying about the fallen human condition? Tammy, what's going on there? Well, the human condition is seen through our heart. The whole chapter is um, he's he's toppling our beliefs on their heads, really upside down, because we have the Pharisees who look awesome and religious you know like they're the ones if we dressed up for halloween we would dress like a pharisee we would not be dressing like a deaf man or a syrophoenician woman you Mm. know and yet what we see is those people show faith and their hearts are revealed in a way that the hearts of the religious leaders are not yeah do you do you see what i mean like how it's kind of turned upside down yeah the um and the I feel like all this has to be occurring because the disciples are watching and Jesus is teaching something. So the heart, the fallen human condition of my heart makes me absolutely helpless without Christ. There's no hope for my heart um, without the rescue of Jesus. You know, I, I don't need the law. I need I need something bigger. I don't need the traditions and all the parameters I set up for myself. Those are without Christ. Those are an empty fix. They're not going to solve anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how um, how does this differ, Becca? How does this differ from the way that the Jews of the time and the Pharisees and religious leaders, how does it differ from the way that they use the ceremonial law to regulate their diet and state of cleanliness and all that yeah well i think especially since they were using all of these laws so much of it was it was about everything that was outside of them so there was like this knowledge that that the world was fallen and broken and messed up but there seemed to be a lack of knowledge that Hmm. that's not what makes everything wrong with me Mm -hmm. right i i am also broken and fallen Mm -hmm. and hopeless Mm -hmm. um and so yeah my heart is what needs to change. And so I could fix everything on the outside and make my surroundings perfect. I could make my appearance look perfect. And yet that's going to mean nothing if I'm not changed in, the, yeah. in my heart. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. The gospel says that the world is broken, um, that sin has broken the world, that um, 
It's a dark world. That's certainly true. But the gospel also says your biggest problem is you, Mm -hmm. right? Your biggest problem is you. Your biggest problem is your heart, your sin. Um, You know, Paul says in Romans, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive with Christ, right? And that comes from the new heart or as he tells Nicodemus and John, it comes from the new birth, right? As we need this new heart. Um, Jesus, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but uh, towards the end here in verses 21 and uh, 21 to 23, mm-hmm. he lists 12 things that come out of a sinful heart. And the first six are actions and the second six are attitudes, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, again, it's not exhaustive, but I think he's covering really the full scope of uh of wickedness and evil that come from the heart and we get a new heart i think we get a clue uh, how we get a new heart back in verse 14 when he says hear me all of you and understand right it comes from hearing the words of christ and receiving them and uh, in so doing we we get a new heart um so ben this recently i was commiserating with a friend of obviously truth speaking friend about the pandemic and my children being so underfoot all the time. And, um, I just was telling her, you know, I just, they make me so mad and I get so impatient and I, this, and she said, I know, isn't it amazing that all that was inside of us? Mm. And I was like, ouch, but that's what we see here. I mean, this list of pride and foolishness, you know, they're on there and that's, where my anger stems from and yeah. oh it just it it was one little phrase and she wasn't trying to put me on my knees in deep sure. repentance but that's what i felt later was wow she's right this is this is what we see here this is yeah. why um my condition is so helpless yeah without and it just shows me my need yeah um and i just i have one quote that i found i thought was really good um it was basically, am I defined by my love or by my laws? Hmm. Like, you know, so when, yeah, when other people see me, and that even ties back to the traditions. Am I defined to others by the things I keep or by the love that I show? Yeah. yeah that's good. Um, before we move on real quick, uh, I always try and point this out whenever I'm in a passage like this. Um but uh, when when Jesus gives this list of twelve things here, the first the first evil, the first sinful thing he lists is sexual immorality, um, which we see often in the New Testament when there's a list of sins or sinful attitudes. Sexual immorality often, if not almost always, um, comes first, and uh, I think that's intentional. Mm. My take on that is that it's intentional uh, because sexual immorality, perhaps more than any of these other, you know. Um, actions or heart dispositions just makes us wonky. It makes us right. It's it's it leads to so many other sins: lying, pride, uh, anger, um, and so on. And so I think it's very intentional. You know, you get to Paul almost every time. Paul writes a list of sins: sexual immorality mm-hmm. comes first because so much in our. And I think it's important to mention in our sexualized culture, yeah. and we're going to talk about this some here now. Coming to the Syrophoenician woman um, to really be aware if there's any. If there's anywhere now, again, purity culture, modesty culture can often has gone too far, especially when it comes to blaming women for men's lust, which has happened often. But if there's anything in our culture that we need to set up some 
fences around its own sexual morality because I think scripture clearly teaches it makes us very wonky and it um, it leads to other sins and we're not even always aware that sexual immorality is at the root. So um, yeah, I think just being aware of that and um, I think scripture calls our attention to that. So um, now that being said, again, uh, sometimes it's gone too far. It's often gone too far. And uh, so let's kind of maybe get into some of that. Now we're approaching the Syrophoenician woman, uh, I think in these next two passages. So there's the Syrophoenician woman and then uh, the um, mute and uh, deaf Mm -hmm. man that he heals, uh, both in the Gentile region near Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Clearly, I think this is application of what Jesus has been saying in verses 1 to 23, that it's not that there are no defiled things that make us evil. And because there are no defiled things, there are no defiled persons, right? I think that's sort of the message here and that the gospel can penetrate, you know, Jew and Gentile alike because all are equally sin and it comes down to the heart. Um, But the Syrophoenician woman passage, we're going to spend some time on this. Uh, I think this is a tough passage, right? This is a really tough passage for several reasons. Um, but mostly because of the way that the language that Jesus uses in dialogue with the woman, right? And so here you have this woman um, who by all measure was um, unclean and, you know, Gentile and Mm -hmm. so on. And uh, Jesus is engaged in a conversation with her. She wants him to uh, heal uh, or cast a demon out of her daughter. And he gives this parable of let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You're like, what? (laughs) Why is Jesus like, is he calling her a dog? You know what? And that, you know, to our modern sensibilities, it's completely shocking to us that he would speak to a woman in this way. Um, It's totally not politically correct at all. Um, (laughs) And so it just raises all sorts of issues for us. And so we're going to get into, for those of you listening, we're going to get into the proper um, interpretation of this passage in a few minutes. But we're going to kind of take a detour and talk about why this passage can be so hard for us to understand and really apply, especially for women, right? Especially for women. For women. Um, there's... There's so many issues today in our culture and in our churches um, where women are often treated poorly, without dignity, or they're demeaned, and it can lead to an attitude of seeing see how see how even Jesus doesn't treat women well. That can be one way, or that be, those negative experiences can be internalized and say to say like, "Oh, I deserve to be treated this way," and I see that because Jesus treats the woman this way too, right? And so we want to talk about what in our culture can lead to that those thoughts and those attitudes let's deal with those and then we're going to talk about jesus's heart for women that we do see in the scriptures and then we'll come back to how we can really understand um this passage so i'm really glad that becca and tammy are here to speak to the difficulties of this and the weightiness of this and so um let's let's jump in to that uh becca i want to start with you what really what kinds of experiences um might women have had in churches or in the workplace or in school uh, that would cause them to read Jesus as being dismissive or even derogatory toward this woman? Yeah, Um, it's a big question. (laughs) Um, I think there's a number and I think 
Um, there's some very big and explicit examples, but then you also tend to feel and experience it in less obvious ways. And a lot of times those less clear ways have their impact because like, right, I, you grow up hearing these stories about women who are severely mistreated by men and then the men seem to kind of get off without it or like the women have to try so hard to prove mm-hmm. that something was mm-hmm. done wrongly. Um, and so just that alone then makes it, okay, well, if I speak my truth, will I, will I be heard or do I have to have all this evidence that I actually had this demeaning experience. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a whole lot yeah. that's there. Um, Tammy, you want to add anything to that? One way that I've seen, I think, an improvement in the last, I don't know, decade maybe, is just the acknowledgement of the teaching of women, mm-hmm. that women can go to seminary and it's not uh for reasons that are Mm anti-biblical like not every seminary attendee is going to try to preach in a church and just the acknowledgement i think um the book no little women by Mm -hmm. amy amy bird Mm -hmm. um speaks a lot to the fact that women are reading more Mm -hmm. in the in the bookstores in the Christian bookstores, there's this huge percentage of the books that are, that are aimed at Christian women. Mm -hmm. So if our women, if we as women aren't being taught discernment or taught as like members of the church, Mm -hmm. um, that that's, it's, it's going to lead to problems in the church. Like, you know, who's discipling the women. And I feel like there's been an increase in that from the past, from the pulpit, Mm -hmm. but also, um, from other women being allowed to be educated in scripture. Mm -hmm. See, I think that's what Jesus, one of the things I think he's showing us here is he doesn't even have to give this woman the time of day that would, nobody in this culture would have thought anything less of him if he had not even spoken back to this woman, you know, like that very, the thing that he did by even addressing her was countercultural. Right. So, but he did address her and he pulled out an amazing truth for his disciples, which I think we'll talk about in a second. But yeah. um, but just the fact that we can be acknowledged like, you know, Ben, you have two women on this podcast yeah. and and I am grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. And um, I guess it didn't even strike me till this week how countercultural that would be to yeah. some people. Sure. Um, so. No, but but I think to Becca's point, there is a um, a burden of proof that lies with women if there's a like an accusation of abuse or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's often a burden of proof with the women or the victim more so than the perpetrator. Yeah, there's a reputation there. He would never quote right. unquote. Right. And who does she think she is? You know, we've yeah. heard those things in the last. 10 years or even more recently, a lot more. Yeah. What about, um, yeah, I appreciate you both sharing that. Do you think, I mean, this is, I'd be, I kind of want to break this down of, you know, uh, our church exists within a culture. And so what are the things that we see in our culture? And you hit on a couple of those things, like not, you know, kind of who does she think she is when abuse allegations come to light or so on. But like, what are some of the attitudes that we see in our culture that can sometimes 
maybe even bleed into the church? Like, are there maybe some concrete things that you can think of in our culture, maybe in different professions or, you know, expectations for men and women um, that you see that can make their way into the church? I just want to piggyback on the who does she think she is. Um, It burdens me sometimes that if a woman is educated, Mm -hmm. that there comes a stigma with her, almost a threat to men. And I would pray not in the church, but I don't know that that's the case. Yeah. That, you know, like I have friends who are single women who are beautiful, intelligent, and capable, and they are considered like, oh, she doesn't need, you know, or like, what do these women do? I remember one one man counseling them, if you want to buy a house, buy a house. And, you know, but she just felt like she should be waiting in order mm-hmm. to be a godly Christian woman who would be um, attractive to a Christian man, mm-hmm. that, that she should somehow not get a house, but just sit around and wait for yeah. someone to, you know, yeah. make a move. I don't know. So yeah. um, just I, I would hope that men are secure enough in their Christianity and their faith in the Lord to not see these women as threats mm-hmm. because I don't think they are. I, I don't see any, you know, well, I mean, I guess it's individual, right? Yeah. But in my friends, um, just because a woman is educated doesn't mean she's something to be yeah. feared. That's one of the things. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up. That's one of the things that really hit kind of close, uh, not close to home. I, I don't think this is a, uh, issue I struggle with. I hope I'm not insecure in this way. Uh, I may be, I'm just not know, but Amy bird brings this up in her newest book. you mentioned Amy bird. And, um, I think the book title is recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. And she's really getting at extremes. And one of the extremes that she, uh, counters is a teaching that has, um, been around for a while, uh, that basically can be summarized by all women submit to all men. Mm. And that she, uh, deals with an essay, uh, where the author of the essay from the biblical manhood and womanhood movement said that, um, uh, even, even if the, if a woman is at home and a male post postman comes to deliver the mail and she goes out to get the mail from the postman in that moment, that woman must be concerned about how she submits to the postman and affirms his authority in that moment. And she kind of says in the book, she says, is biblical masculinity really so fragile mm. that it relies on women in every situation submitting to uphold, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, is that really so fragile or, or is that like, where do we see that? Right. You know, that, um, that, uh, yeah. So I, I just appreciate you bringing that up. And I think that is a, a real issue. And I do think men, um, you know, my mom, one of her stories, she's, my mom's a, uh, physics and engineering professor, which, uh, not many women in that field, no, I was gonna especially say. when, you know, when she was in school, uh, and she, you know, has lots of stories from when she was in, in classes and she has one where, you know, she was the only student, uh, only woman in the class and she was the only one who got an A Ooh. and the professor gave, you know, her grade out and then said, like, guys, are you really going to be bested by a woman like this? Oh, you know, and like, so she but has lots of those examples. Like oh, yeah. 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 I think that's still very common yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. Becca, what do you have anything to add to this? Yeah. Well, I think um, you both were talking about how much 
knowledge women can gain now and how much learning. And I think that's very true. But then it, it, it does make it challenging because it can still be very challenging on how to how do I get to use? Mm-hmm. Like I'm learning a whole lot now. Mm-hmm. And how, how do I actually get to use that? Um, and how have I seen other other women who I know are very qualified to lead get to use the, um, their qualifications? And sometimes I think it can be clearer to men like, oh, this woman actually has a lot of sway or has a lot to give. Um, mm-hmm. But like growing up in the church, I didn't realize all mm-hmm. right. If there's not like something that kind of more formally shows it, it's yeah. hard to to see that and to have an example of, mm-hmm. oh, this woman has used her gifts and her knowledge and has been able to apply it. And so there's just, there can be a disconnect of, and even like, oh, I can learn all of this, but then I can know just as much as a man. And, mm-hmm. and yet am I, I don't mm-hmm. have, I don't know what to do with it, or yeah. I, I still kind, I have to submit, and it's, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. confusing. Yeah. This, the the woman that we're looking at did not send a messenger to ask Jesus. Like yeah. she didn't pay anybody, a man, yeah. to say this woman has blah blah blah. And I am humored because in um, thinking about this, I was thinking about very strong pastors' wives that I know. (laughs) And I think a lot of ideas that we see in the church today that have been wicked successful (laughs) have come from women Mm -hmm. who said something to their husbands who they're never going to say, Oh, you know, like (laughs) that was my idea. But, um, and, and sometimes the, the pastor or the leader may say, you know, my wife came up with this or whatever. Yeah. And that's happened sometimes and not always, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> but I, I just, there are a lot of ideas that have come from pastors' yeah. wives who never, never seek to, you know, yeah. wear the, oh, that was me. That was mine. You know, yeah. and, but even if, I mean, even, there's nothing demeaning to a man to say, my wife came up with this or right. Becca, thank you for this, right. you know? Um, right. And I don't really understand how, well, you know, Ben, a lot of this, like going back to the definition of the heart and in another passage jesus says out of the overflow of the heart the mouth Mm -hmm. speaks so um i'm not gonna say as a woman that men need to evaluate their hearts because clearly i have my own heart work that Mm -hmm. needs to be done but the we we all need to remember that that Mm -hmm. they're whatever our issues are they they come from our heart and we're all in the same condition without christ yeah yeah, I really appreciate you all sharing this. Um, and I hope listeners are kind of benefiting from just, yeah, like, there's a lot in our culture and we need to, we can't just glance over these things. And especially my, I have a burden for um, young women, um, whether in the church or outside of the church, because the messages that they've received really uh, can be a, about femininity, masculinity, roles, about men being demeaning to women can really be a big wall to either uh, growing in their faith, uh, or believing and coming to faith. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is, I mean, especially in the me too world in the church Too world. And I do think there's a reckoning right now, uh, of where churches for far too long have ignored some of these things. And we're seeing that all this now coming to light and being exposed. Um, our young women in particular, need to address these issues and hear these issues being addressed and spoken to and hear these nasty attitudes of the heart. They need to see it being rooted out 
of churches, right? right? And yeah. so it's a it's a special burden that I have. I've, you know, this it's part of the reason why I've tried to help our church uh, through the Grace Partnership and uh, really just wanting to. And of course, I'm committed to, you know, what historically has been called, or you know, historically it's a, a modern word, complementarianism. You know, distinction between men and women and gifts and roles in the church and so on. Of course, committed to that, but also wanting to really um, measure well how much of this is extra biblical, how much of this is actually just being demeaning and really rooting that out. So it's a real, it's a real big uh, burden on my heart. And I think there's a lot of things in our culture um, that can, that kind of on the quote unquote small end mm-hmm. of passive maybe attitudes. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, and I think women are fully aware of this, that there are still many places, whether in uh, the workplace or in churches where there's boys clubs, and locker room talk and it's kind of just acceptable right and happy hour and you know the the male co-workers get a beer in them and they start mm-hmm. talking a little loosely and it's just acceptable to talk that way yeah, still um right of course it's not <laughs> but that's the attitude right is that it, it, and it can kind of work its way and i think i think there are probably many settings in churches and I, i'm not i'm not like throwing shady grove i'm just saying in general yeah. i think there's a lot of times probably and i've been in some of those settings where mm, i'm not sure that joke should have been told mm-hmm. you know and that's humor and jokes are one of the ways that toxic attitudes right. get normalized and they're almost accepted right yeah um so that's kind of like on the small end of things and i, I would include in that in workplaces and churches i think women often experience being talked over uh being cut off in conversation mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I've tried to be more aware of in group co-ed settings, but on the bigger end of things, we see, you know, the abuse scandals and, mm-hmm. uh, we see, um, I'll talk about abuse scandals more in a moment, but we see how prominent women leaders are being treated. So Amy Bird is the most recent example, right? And, um, I sent an article to Becca and, uh, Tammy this week, you know, just exposing the way many pastors have been talking about her, Right. Beth Moore gets it all the time. Um, uh, I uh, saw recently a leader from Founders Ministry, which is a pretty conservative, I don't like using that word all the time, but conservative Baptist network that had a post commenting on her eyes, had a picture of her with her eyes and was using like, clearly she's demon possessed because look at her face and her eyes. Oh my goodness. Right? And you're like, this, this man is a leader in the church, right? And, and coming, of course, you have this happening with Amy Bird all the time. It always comes down to looks, mm-hmm. right? And we see we saw this, um, I can't quite remember her name, but the woman who, during um, Kavanaugh's appointment hearings, mm-hmm. the woman who had the allegations mm-hmm. against Kavanaugh, and I'm not trying to get political here, but so much of, and you see this with Amy Coney Barrett too, mm-hmm. so much of the comments about these women are on their looks. It comes down to their looks. They're not feminine enough. They're not this. They're not that. They're not that. And it's like, who who are we to judge those things? Right? But that attitude creeps in. Um, I had my one of my mentors, my um my uh, seminary professor brought uh Amy Bird in to the classroom to uh it was the preaching class to um talk to students, particularly the men students there, about how to preach to women. Mm-hmm. And he posted a picture of that. And he got like severe, like he, one, one, one other pastor called him like, basically you're, you're going to be the death of the PCA because you brought Amy, 
Amy Burden to talk about how to preach to women, right? And so mm-hmm. all sorts of attitudes like that, uh, abuse scandals. You know, you look at Jerry Falwell Jr., who total, I mean, just creep. It's creepy. And then he gets like an $8 million severance yeah. package. And you look at that and you're like, okay, so I guess men can get away with this. type of, And so all these sorts of things, again, coming back to why are we talking about this now? Because it can lead into, you come to this passage like the Syrophoenician woman, see Jesus talking to her like a dog. And this just complicates mm-hmm. so much how to, how to understand what's going on here. Are you trying to make us mad? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm sorry if I am. I'm just, yeah. Um, no, I, I totally appreciate what you're saying. And that's why I go back to, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't think Jesus is just thinking of a specific gender when he right. talks about the heart. Right. And, um, you know, my anger has to be dealt with, but there are other issues that um, I think these these leaders need to acknowledge yeah. And and what I love about this woman is her humility. And then Jesus is totally um, accenting that, you know, he's emphasizing it. I mean, in the passage in Matthew, doesn't it say that this woman will be remembered for her faith? Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm... That might be... I think that's a different woman. Well, okay. I can't remember. There's something said, I'll, I'll take a look at it, but, yeah. um, but about the fact that he, the way he was, that the way she responded would yeah. be like, she was, um, commended for her faith. Yeah. Let me say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's weird. I, I can't quite remember it. I can't quite pull it up because for whatever reason, uh, the, my Bible doesn't reference the Matthew passage with the Canaanite woman. Mm. Uh, so it's hard for me to pull it up quickly. Um, which I, I don't know if it's because they see it as two different women or. Or what? Um, uh, Becca, do you have anything you want to add after kind of what was? I, um, I kind of had a soapbox there for a minute. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, no. <laughs> I guess something that I think, and it, it gets to this, I, I guess, heart response is a lot of times, even when women are sought to be included in the conversation, like sometimes my opinion is asked or when I am open about even just questions mm-hmm. I have or concerns, I feel like the response I get seems to be one that's that's honestly afraid. It's afraid mm-hmm. that I'm going to stir up mm-hmm. like a whole, like get yes. people all worked up and it's just going to pull out all of these emotions mm-hmm. and it's not really going to be helpful or it's one that's well, like maybe if you were a part of these things, you wouldn't actually find them as interesting or as important as mm. you think, but I, I'm not a part of them, so I, I just don't even know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things like that where it's just, yeah, it's it does, it, it kind of does point back to why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Um, yeah. Yeah, and then are, are we being heard and yeah. able to speak? But. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, it's Matthew 15. Okay. And it sounds very much like this woman, yeah. but I, I can't tell you for sure that it's the same woman. But he says to her, woman, you have great faith. Yeah. Um, and he, he does make it's the he says about the dogs there. Right? Yes. He yeah. Does. So, yeah. 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 I, um, you know, it wouldn't be a podcast episode unless I make a few book references. Um, <laughs> Cause I'm, I'm a nerd like that. Um, but hopefully, hopefully my book references are helpful. Uh, I've been reading a book recently. Um, it's over here on the, the table called, 
I'm going to make a few few book references in the rest of the time that we have here. But one uh, one that I've been reading is called Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobez Dumez. I think that's how you say her name. And uh, it's quite the title, I know, Jesus and John Wayne. Um, and so let me just qualify this for a second. So the major, the major thrust of her argument is really trying to expose how 20th century evangelicalism wed itself to some really strange and damaging views of masculinity. And she, so she even goes back to the John Wayne days of how often he would speak at like evangelical rallies, <laughs> even though he wasn't an evangelical Christian, uh, because there was this sort of like war on masculinity, right? And so on. And, um, and so really kind of this setting up this archetype of um, men being, you know, rugged, abrasive, assertive, and, and so on. And of course, this also she argues shaped how women were were viewed uh, for so long and um you know i think as i've been reading this book there's been a lot of eye opening things for me that have really just wow i didn't i didn't know that um about our history i didn't know that about some evangelical leaders who are still alive and very active today about their views and now here's the thing like you might think you know if you read this book which i'll make a comment on in a second but if you read this book you might think this is very one sided sure of course it is she's trying to make a very specific you know, argument. Uh, however, all these examples about scandals uh, from evangelical leaders about really just what are they? How could they teach that? You know, about men and women. All these examples, they're they're becoming more known today, right? This history is coming out mm-hmm. again among young people, and this book is being assigned in both Christian colleges and non-Christian colleges. And so, I think parents, in particular, of teens need to know that their kids, when they go off to college, are going to be exposed to this and they're going to have a lot of questions, right? They're going to want to know how come, you know, this this seems very different than what I thought we believed Mm -hmm. or like, how come I don't hear this being taught as being wrong or Mm -hmm. how come we don't speak to this more? And, you know, there's a lot of questions and we're we're dealing with some of that in our young adults group and um, having been exposed to some of this. So, uh, I think a book like this is important, especially for parents to be aware of. But, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot of eye-opening, eye-opening things there. So let's um, let's keep going because so now we've kind of exposed, here's all the challenges in our culture. Here's all the challenges in our churches that can make approaching this passage difficult. So let's start building on how to properly understand this passage. And let's start with uh, big picture, Jesus's attitude towards women. So uh, a couple questions that you you could both can just speak to. Uh, where in the Gospels do we see good examples of Jesus's real attitude towards women? In particular, uh, what passages might be especially moving to you um, in the way Jesus treats women? Uh, how was it? How was? How do we see his treatment of women being completely countercultural? Is it still countercultural today? Um, so yeah, like what are some big picture passages where we really see Jesus the way he treats women? Um, hmm. Tammy, start with you. Uh, well, I mean, this passage itself speaks to um, the the fact that he is upholding her as an example of faith. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this before the podcast started. This she is one of the first to see Jesus for who he was, or mm-hmm. you know, as her savior, as coming to the Gentiles. I mean, the Jews, the the disciples had it so wrong um you know they they were coming from their own understanding but her she just when you think about before she even got there okay she has a a demon possessed daughter whom she obviously loves but she was humble 
she was humble enough to beg Jesus for um, healing. And um, she was knowledgeable, like the way she replies to him right away. I mean, he <laughs> he called her he didn't he didn't call her a dog. He didn't call her a dog, but right. he used that, you know, and it did. It did appear very, excuse me, harsh. And yet she responded right away. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I I'm sure that took the disciples back. Mm-hmm. So I just you know, I, I wouldn't have said before today, before studying this that this was one of my favorite women <laughs> passages. But I just, this woman knew who she was yeah. and she knew who Jesus was. Yeah. And I, to me, I walked away from this thinking more about myself and how mm. I need to see things differently mm-hmm. um, as much as the way Jesus um, responded to her. Mm-hmm. You know, the other one that I think we've already discussed in the podcast was the the woman who reached out and touched his garment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. It just has always been one of my favorite um, examples. And both of these women show a boldness. Mm-hmm. That it's just, I don't know if in today's society it would be considered um, attractive. At that time, it was certainly considered exceptional, yeah. you know, shocking. Yeah. But Jesus, both of these women were equally loved and given attention. Mm-hmm. That's just beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, the Mark 5 for me and how he calls her daughter, which I think is in any of the Gospels. I think that's the only hmm. woman like with such an endearing or only person with such an endearing title. Right. And he calls her daughter. Um, uh, I, I love that. Uh, Becca, what are some passages for you that really speak to Jesus's heart mm-hmm. for women? I also really like Mark 5, but I think another one um, is John 4, the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We've talked a lot about that, I think, um, I guess just at our church in general. But I love he engages in like a a pretty long conversation. But Mm -hmm. you have even like even the disciples when they come back, they're like, why are you talking to her? And so he's clearly overstepping that boundary. He reasons with her. Um, It's just to me, it's a very encouraging passage. And he he then uses her to go and share this newfound faith. that's beautiful yeah um i have another one (laughs) i also really like um just the story of mary sitting at jesus's feet Mm -hmm. um because i know i'm often tempted to always be doing stuff and a lot of times that's like like women are always kind of at work in the background and so the value and the highlighting of you're doing what is right when you're sitting here um seeking relationship with me seeking knowledge and I just yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. She was like in Jesus seminary. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were, you know, that, and that's the thing is there was a lot of women who were in Jesus seminary, yeah, right? I mean, right. that his ministry was supported by the traveling women who yeah. were with him. I mean, that's how they were funded. It was because the women who traveled and sat and received teaching. I mean, Mary Magdalene is a great example. I mean, she was possessed by seven demons, mm. you know, would have been regarded probably as, a dog, right? Absolutely. By by the you know, and then she gets, you know, he he heals her, and then she travels as one of the followers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she even becomes, in a sense, the you know the the apostle to the apostles, mm-hmm. right? Because she talks tells them about the resurrection, and um, yeah, you have uh, depending on if you see it as canonical or not, you have John eight, the woman caught in adultery, mm-hmm. um, so that you know, I think it fits with 
his attitude towards women. I'm not sure if it is canonical. You need to go back and forth. Uh, but John 19, when he's on the cross and he, yes, he uh, makes sure his mother. woman, uh, his mother's going to be cared for. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many big, big moments where if you understand, which again, we forget this, but if you understand the culture of Jesus's day, it's just so amazingly countercultural. Um, the way he treats women with equal di- dignity, equal respect. Um, so here's another, my second book reference. Um, is uh, a new book that came out recently within the last year, I think, called uh, Worthy. The subtitle is Celebrating the Value of Women. It's by Elise Fitzpatrick. You might mm-hmm. know her name, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, and then another um, pastor who I think is his first book, uh, Eric Schumacher. Uh, but one of the things they do is really just trace women in the Bible and especially highlight their role in redemptive history. And it really, I mean, it opened up a lot of things for me that I hadn't seen before. I loved the book and each chapter is like dedicated to a different kind of point in redemptive history. So in the chapter on um, Jesus's life and ministry and how he treated women, I just want to read the headings. It's all right. So these are the headings for each subsection in that chapter. But I think this is a really good summary of how Jesus treated women. Okay. Uh, Number one, Jesus noticed women. Number two, Jesus dignified women as fully human. Three, he enjoyed the company of women. Four, he was ministered to by women. Five, he was touched, he touched and was touched by women. Six, he was always appropriate with women, gentle, gracious, compassionate, though never condescending. Seven, he rebuked, disagreed with, corrected, and forgave individual women. Eight, He included women in his parables and illustrations. Nine, he used his platform to protect and dignify women opposing misogyny and sexism. And we see that like in condemning condemning the neglect of mothers, protecting women from unjust divorce, things like that. And finally, he taught, discipled, and dialogued uh, with women. I think that's a good summary like of just that blows the treatment of women then and sometimes today, right? Blows it out of the water um, and really just kind of gives you a big picture for Clearly, Jesus loved women. Clearly, he didn't see women as dogs. Right. Um, clearly, he didn't see them as second class or less than. But in, in a sense, he's restoring their dignity in a culture that had taken it away from them often, whether it was Jewish culture or Greco-Roman culture for different reasons, right, was taking dignity away from, from women. So with that now as our big picture it's of how we understand Jesus's heart towards women, let's come to specifically this passage, how should we understand then his response to the woman and what is he referring to when he uses the dog language, this this kind of rough language? Um, Becca, we'll start with you. We'll go to Tammy after that. Yeah. Um, well, I think for me, it's still a little bit of a, a hard thing to read. You kind yeah. of cringe when you hear the language, but it is. it's important to realize that it's not because she's a woman that she he uses mm-hmm. that language, um, but she is she is a Gentile, and so she wasn't part of the Israelite table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he here is providing an example that he has come not only for the Israelites, and so he's come for these people mm-hmm. who are considered the dogs, the unclean, the outcast, um, the ones who aren't welcome, um, but. I think he's really, it's a call for humility and true faith comes in humility. And so she does, like Tammy was saying, she she accepts that, yes, that's that's what I am before you. Right? I'm not worthy of um, 
of your grace. Um, I am sinful and broken and unclean before you. And yet that's who I am. But, but I have the faith to come to you because she knows that he is caring and gentle and forgiving and he Mm -hmm. wants her to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tammy, we want to add to that. Well, the, the word bread, I think is beautiful because Jesus says, um, the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So the Jews, okay, bread. And we see the bread in the feeding of the 5,000 and he provides the bread. And then her response is, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Mm. And I, I just smile at this woman's faith. She's not even saying, I don't need the whole loaf. You know, I, <laughs> the crumbles are enough. And, yeah. um, so it it seems like like Becca said she was a Gentile. She knew she was a Gentile. I, I found out this week that um, do you know who the most famous Phoenician woman was in the Old Testament? Jezebel. Mm-hmm. So she is not coming from a line of nice right. women, you know. Right. Um, so she knew that she was a Gentile and that he came first to the Jews. That's why I, I am amazed at her like her knowledge of scripture, mm-hmm. that's all over the Old Testament that right. he came to the Jews first and also to the Greek. And right. that's what she was. So, um, but she knew that. And yet she also knew that Jesus was the answer. He was going to be the bread of life. She doesn't call him that, but she obviously mm-hmm. knew where to go to get um, the the healing for her daughter and the fact that he was trying to hide i mean she found him she was begging you know she put herself in a position of humility yeah she she never said how dare you yeah you know speak to me like that yeah and um that's what my thought was (laughs) you know when i read it how dare you speak to her like that jesus you know right i think it's also like speaking of that humility, humility, it doesn't make her like shut down or hide. She mm-hmm. bold. Yeah, she's yeah. very bold even in her humility. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's good too. That's not the definition we would always yeah. Yeah. oh yes, Lord, and go cowering off. Right. She pushed him like almost pushy, almost like her boldness was it had to leave the disciples going, wait, wait, what? Yeah. 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 Oh man, that's so good. Um it really is. I mean, if we can get past, which it's hard again with, especially with our 21st century, um, PC culture, if we can get past the, the dog language, um, her faith man is mm-hmm. really remarkable. Um, Tammy, you brought out, you know, the link to Jezebel and Elijah's ministry, right? <laughs> uh, so that's obviously some backdrop, but that also means that we are near the region, uh, where Elijah ministered to a Gentile woman in first Kings 17. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so we're kind of seeing some parallels here, uh, between that. And there's some more old Testament parallels that we'll talk about, uh, in just a moment. So, um, yeah, I definitely think that's, that's kind of a backdrop here. And the Syrophoenician woman from a Pharisaical, from a Jewish perspective is kind of like the unclean of the unclean, you know, commentators, I, I don't have a, f- a firm position on this. I, well, I'll, I'll tell you where I tend to land. Um, commentators say there's kind of like really two options here with the dog language. Number one, it's, you know, the Jewish people regarded Gentiles as dogs because they were unclean, right? They were street animals. They fed on corpses and trash and things like that. So dogs were unclean. So this was a derogatory word for Gentiles. So he's not calling the woman as woman 
dog. He's calling the woman as Gentile mm-hmm. dog, right? Uh, so this could have been, he could have said the same thing to a man. Um, but, uh, you know, so some people say it's because Gentiles were so unclean, they were viewed as dogs, and that's how Jesus is using the word. Others will say, well, the word here for dog is actually isn't the common word for dog. It's really the little dog household pet word. And so Jesus is drawing a parabolic image of a household with children at a table and little dogs under the the little pets under the table. So he's not derogatory that they're unclean. It's just that they're in the household setting. They're like under the table dogs. And I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, you know what? Either way, yeah. it doesn't really get around the, this isn't very PC. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to spend a ton of time, um, you know, parsing that. I, I do think in light of the first 23 verses where he's talking about what defiles a person, I think the first interpretation makes more sense, right? Because he's talking about what makes a person unclean. Right. And I think this is an application of there are no, un, there are no defiled things that can make you evil and there are no defiled persons right? Like from it, like we're all, all of our hearts yes. are wicked, right? So he's, he's, I think taking this to the next level that we're not just talking about things that can defile you, but mm-hmm. people are not defiled either. Right. Um, and so in the, in the unclean sense, of course we're defiled by sin if you want, but in the unclean sense, there are no sure. defiled people. Um, and so I think he's using language. Now, another thing that's kind of in the back of my head and there's nothing in the text that indicates this, but you know, there's other passages in the Gospels where it says Jesus, knowing their thoughts, mm. answers them. And I just wonder if, because the disciples are the only one, other ones here, right? The right. Pharisees aren't here. The scribes aren't here. I'm wondering if it's kind of like Jesus perceiving how they view this woman uses their language to make the point to them that this woman who you think is a dog has great faith. Right, because mm-hmm. up to this point, mm-hmm. they've seen the feeding of the five thousand. They've heard the parables. They don't get them. Their hearts are hardened by the feeding of the five thousand. And here is a woman who I'm pretty sure is the first person in Mark to get a parable. Mm-hmm. I think she's the first, as far as I know, she's the first person he tells the parable and she responds in faith. Yes, but even you know uh, the crumbs are enough, right? So she gets it, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably very eye opening for the disciples of like whoa, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we thought she was nothing but a dog, like all Gentiles. And he's been telling us that our hearts are hardened and that we don't understand the parables and how come we don't understand yet. And she gets it right away. Um, so I think that is kind of what is going on. But again, that last piece, I don't, there's nothing in the text mm-hmm. to indicate that, but it, it would fit with his character and what we know, but I can't, I'm not going to say that as authoritative. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have been a, you know, a part of the room when after Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples are going back, remembering all these things that happened when Jesus was here and saying, Oh, I wonder if he was teaching us this then, you know, yeah. and, um, but yeah, that's good. Yeah. You know, she never, she never makes any qualms about the fact that her need is great and she shows great faith. And it teaches me something about prayer, her persistence. You know, that's when we, when we're filled up with pride and I can, I can, I got this. Mm -hmm. We don't really have great need of God. Yeah. And yet she's showing us that she acknowledges her need. She acknowledged she's humble and um, and that's why she's persistent because she yeah. knows that Jesus is her source of help. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, now I, I, I didn't even have, I'm so grateful for both of your kind of exposition of, of this and maybe even from a women's woman's perspective, what, you know, uh, I'm very encouraged by her faith now. Like, mm-hmm. I, and I didn't see that before. Um, but even with all my study, I wasn't really seeing that. So I really appreciate both of you sharing those insights. Um, we're kind of pressed for time <laughs> and we have one major section here, uh, left. So, um, I'm going to, this is going to kind of be like quick fire around. Okay. And, uh, I'm going to try and just summarize, uh, this last passage and how it connects with the rest in just a few minutes. But if there's something that either of you want to add, just raise a finger and I'll pause and, and go to you. So I'm going to try and give like the quick fire overview. And then if you want to like jump in and there's something you really wanted to say about, uh, this man in verses 31 to 37, please do so. Uh, so this is a really interesting healing. Uh, I think it's the first time in Mark and one of the few times in the gospels where he's using, right? Like he's using his spit, mm-hmm. right? And it's just, and it's kind of strange. Like what, what's going on with the spit and, um, you know, why is he doing this healing here? It's still in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so let me, uh, just make a couple comments here. Um, first, uh, this word used for speech impediment, you know, um, that's how it's translated in the ESV. It has a speech impediment. This word in the Greek is only used one other time in the scriptures, and that's in Isaiah 35 in the Septuagint, uh, which says that the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. That's uh, Isaiah 35 in the ESV. And while Mark rarely draws, um, uh, you know, kind of connection to Old Testament text, here the link is significant and every commentator I read said that, agreed that there's a significant link here to Isaiah 35, because Isaiah 35 follows on uh, several chapters of God's judgment of the nations. But then in chapter 35, the theme shifts from uh, a theme of judgment to a theme of eschatology, and all of the creation will be glad, right? Now, the wilderness of the Gentile nations will be glad and will have the joy of the Lord. And in verse 2 of chapter 35, it talks about how the wastelands of Lebanon will receive the joy of God. Well, that's exactly where Jesus is, right? This region of Tyre and Sidon are precisely in that region. And so by drawing our attention to Isaiah 35, Mark is not only saying that this eschatological redeemer, this end time redeemer has come, but that this end time fulfillment of the nations and the wastelands receiving the joy of God that it has begun, right? And then we see that in Jesus. Um, I honestly, and this is again, if you, either of you have like a insight, I don't have a great insight to the the spit, right? I, I read some commentators and I was like, yeah, none of what you're saying really, um, you know, seems convincing to me. One commentator said it might be foreshadowing Jesus' blood being shed. And I think that's a huge stretch. I don't see how spit and blood <laughs> correlate. Uh, another commentator just expressed that through graphic material means, Jesus is conveying his attention and care to the man. Perhaps the one that I align would see the most evidence for is there's some historical evidence that this practice was common in folk medicine mm-hmm. to use like spit and that spit from certain figures could be thought of as being powerful. So he's, he's do he's healing this man in a way that maybe he understands. Um, mm-hmm. and that would develop trust, you know? And so, uh, I think that's probably the most likely is that he's kind of using what was thought of as folk medicine, right. Um, to convey trust to this man. Um, I'm not sure. I think that's probably the most convincing, but it's still odd that he's using spit, <laughs> right? Cause he doesn't use that very often. Um, I don't know if he's uh, done this up to this point in Mark, and I'm sorry I didn't go back and look at it, but he's used his words 
he he yeah. used his words with the woman. He said, "Go home. Your daughter is healed." And now he's using saliva. So, mm-hmm. like even his saliva is divine. You know, he's not just using his word, which he has up to this point. So I don't know if that's where the blood comes in. Yeah. But he was a divine being and right. he was using perhaps he was showing them that that yeah. he was more divine than just his words his spit was <laughs> yeah it had power yeah i mean i know there's some historical examples of like kings or rulers who were thought to have um magic spit and so if that was a, a belief of that area you know then he could have been playing on that i it's just it's just a little bit strange uh but either way he heals the man Right. And um, this this commentator, I thought, had a good this is James Edwards uh, kind of summarizes this. He says, um, you know, in verse 14, Jesus implored, hear me, everyone and understand. Mm -hmm. And Mark now relates the story of a Gentile who uh, I'm quoting Edwards here because of the touch of Jesus can hear Jesus like the Syrophoenician woman. Another Gentile outsider has been included in the company of Jesus. Mark is here resuming his insiders outsiders theme. The hearing and understanding commanded by Jesus are made possible only by Jesus. Faith in Jesus is a difficult matter. Indeed, it is the most difficult matter in all the world. Some, like the disciples, are in close and constant contact with Jesus but still cannot see. Others, like the Syrophoenician woman and this speech and hearing impaired man, are in dark and distant lands. Still others, like Mark's readers in Rome, may struggle with bearing witness to their faith with their lives. What does it mean for all these to hear and understand? It means that whether Jew or Gentile, near or far, knowledgeable or neophyte, only the touch of Jesus can enable true hearing, seeing, understanding, and witness. Well, that was a good summary. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, there's an application here, Ben. When our ears are opened to what, to when we hear truth in God's word, our mouths are opened in praise. Yeah. You know, like at the end, he has done all things well. Yeah. He even makes the deaf hear mm-hmm. and the mute speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know it's an application that I don't know that any Edwards or Henry or anybody else would come up to, but it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Well, it connects to the end of Isaiah 35. What you just said, Isaiah 35 verse 10 ends, and the ransom of the Lord. You know, this is going back to the Isaiah 35 connection mm-hmm. here. Uh, the end of that chapter says, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Mm. Hmm. Um, Amen. Yeah. So I have a question for you. I know I'm not trying to take a long time, but why does he sigh? Hmm. Like it says in verse um, 34, he sighed and said to him. Becca? Um, Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I read one thing was talking about just how very physical this whole mm-hmm. healing was. Mm-hmm. And this man was deaf and unable to speak well. So he can't hear the man's side, but even, I guess, the bodily expression. Then somebody else, I think, was saying, and I don't remember who this, where I read this, but was also saying something more along the lines of, um, well, I guess just, right, they haven't been hearing and understanding kind of the idea mm-hmm. of, you're, you sigh when you're tired when it's again, again, yeah. um, which, but I don't know. I mean, a sigh, I guess, is very physical more than just like verbal yeah. communication, but the healing overall is very personal and intimate, I mm-hmm. think. And yeah, I just wonder if it was grief, if it was yeah. Mark showing him as a human being 
Yeah, yeah. No, and grief over. Well, wasn't it considered that demon possession and these illnesses were a sign of sin? Right. And and he was so grieved. I, yeah. I just wonder. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's nowhere else. So this word, I just kind of quickly looked it up, does, can mean like complain, you know? And it, so then that question is, well, what is he complaining about? Mm. Um, because uh, there's nowhere else in the Gospels where we have an example of Jesus groveling or complaining or grumbling, right. right? So I think it's kind of similar to John 11, like he's moved in his spirit uh, and grieving over sin or whatever the case may be. And he's looking up at the Father, right? Mm-hmm. So he looks up sure. at the Father and sighs. He's not complaining to God like, uh, like this guy, mm-hmm. right? It's a, I think there's a move in his spirit, like he's sighing of like empathy almost, mm-hmm. and this is what sin has done to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more of, if you can call that a complaint, yeah. uh, what he's being moved in his spirit to, yeah. not a, ah, uh, oh, this guy, I have to deal yeah. with this guy. You know, it's certainly not, we can't justify that attitude anywhere from scripture so i had one last thought just about how the chapter ends yeah um so far we we get to hear a lot of the reaction of like the crowds around jesus when he does heal and there's been people who um kind of are in awe at his power but don't know what to do about it and then you get a lot of responses where they they're afraid and they push them out but as far as i remember now they now they say that he has done all things well. And mm. so it it does mm. seem to be an increasing understanding. And now it's just not the almighty, all-powerful, awesome mm. man. Um, but he he does it well. He is good. Um, yeah. I liked that mm. progression. Yeah, and especially in light of the last time he was in the Decapolis, they told him to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, now he's back and they're saying he does all things well. That's yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all for listening. I hope if you haven't realized it yet that you can listen to this <laughs> at one and a half or double speed. Uh, trying to, you know, we're trying to get these things to an hour and we always end up having a good conversation, but we hope you're enjoying listening uh, to these podcasts. We're enjoying doing them. We'll be back again next week with chapter eight. And uh, uh, until then, I uh, hope you're doing well. Praying for you all. Love you all. And uh, see you next time.